Welcome to Sunday Celebrations. With thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives, this is the podcast version of a radio show that airs on Easy Music 3MP in Melbourne every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and across the ACE Radio Network in regional Victoria and southern New South Wales every Sunday evening at 8 o'clock. Each week, we chat to people who have each played their part in shaping life in Australia. Business leaders, sportsmen and women, politicians, entertainers and broadcasters. In this episode, we're featuring Malcolm Blight AM. Blighty's list of accolades is extensive, consistently one of the most brilliant players in the VFL during the 1970s. He won two premierships as a player with North Melbourne in 1975 and 77 and twice as a coach of Adelaide in 1997 and 98. He is one of only three players to have won both the Brownlow Medal and the McGeary Medal, an inaugural inductee into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 1996 and was elevated to legend status in 2017. An amazing playing career. Was also followed by 20 years of coaching that saw him coach 300 games across five clubs. And now a continuation of his football involvement through the media as a commentator and co-host. Welcome to Sunday Celebrations, Malcolm Blight. Uh, Good morning, Grant. Great to be talking with you. Now, we've got a lot to cover off on because it's been quite an incredible career so far. But let's start at the very start and go back to young Malcolm. Growing up in Adelaide in the 50s and 60s, did you have a footy in your hand as a two-year-old? Was it really early in your life? Yeah, I I don't know. When it attracted me, we, we didn't have a footy, actually. We used to kick around socks. Right. With my brother, and uh, yeah, we just, I didn't get a footy until I nicked one actually from Woodville Oval over the back of the fence and took off one day with it. So that was my first real footy. Prior to that, I had a couple of plastic ones. Yeah, it was just something that the kids did. We played cricket and footy. They were the team games. You know, came from a background of, you know, uh, mum and dad got a war commission home mm. when dad came back from the war. So things were tight, but you know, you got fed and had a bed, and the sport was a way out. Um, standing, sitting at home wasn't one of my things. It was get down to the Oval and, and play footy or cricket, really, with all the, all the all your mates. My son's in his late 20s. He doesn't get the whole get out and come back in when it's dark. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and sometimes you didn't because you were having such fun wherever you were and you usually got a little clip around the ears. So you learnt to get home, it's sort of dark, and it's when mum started to get a bit anxious. So, yeah, no, you, you learnt the rules pretty early. So when did the, the competitive side of footy start? I mean, you got recruited at 18, but was there some junior footy and stuff before that? Yeah, I was actually, I don't know if you're allowed these days, but I was eight, eight going on nine and playing in an under-15 comp. There were no eight, under-8s, under-10s, under-12s, under-14s when I was around as a kid. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I had a brother who who played, you know, three years older than me. So I guess I just tagged around with him and, you know, got the occasional game as an eight- or nine-year-old. And, <laughs> you know, by that time they were, you know, smoking, drinking and, and, you know, shaving. All those got kids, all the older ones. So, yeah, you got opened up to, to a lot of, lot of, I guess, a lot of mini-adult things as a youngster. Yeah, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do that now, would you? Not an eight-year-old. No. So when you got recruited, Woodville, you were a Port Adelaide supporter as a kid. The zones changed, is that right? I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Frankston boy in Melbourne, so St Kilda was my zone or my region back in the day. It's not quite a, quite a thing anymore. But the new club came along and you suddenly got zoned in with the Woodpeckers, is that right? Yes, indeed. Yeah, what actually happened was originally, very originally, I was at West Highlands where my dad played at in a second hmm. and my uncle played actually league footy there. So and I had another cousin that played at West Highlands as well. So... But, but I lived behind one of the great full forwards' parents, uh, Rex Johns from Port Adelaide. So Port Adelaide became my team as a kid, and they also won five or six premierships in a row. So, you know, and don't forget this time, you, you, 
rarely I went to the footy. I went with my uncles a couple of times to Albert and Oval. That's Port Adelaide's ground. Mm. And Woodville were in the amateur league. So they were a team four streets away from me, but just didn't have the profile of a Port Adelaide or a West Hines for that matter because they were in a lesser league. So when they were admitted to the seconds in 1959, along with Central Districts, so the SNFL competition went from eight teams to ten teams, then I became zoned to the Woodville team. They came into the league five years later after a stint in the seconds in 1964, once again along with Central, so it became that 10-team competition, which is still is. Because, of course, Woodville ended up becoming Woodville West Torrens. Yeah, both teams were struggling at the time, and it, and it just probably made a bit of sense. I mean, a lot of people weren't very happy about it, but from my point of view, from the Blight-name point of view, it was the emerging of all my relatives from the old days to, to my and my brother. My brother also played seconds at Woodville, so... Mm. Yeah, I, I thought it was a. I still think it's a great thing that the Woodville West Torrens and the Blight name came to not, you know, came together. So that was good. I mean, merging clubs in, in particular in country footy is just uh, is, is commonplace now. Um, sometimes three or four clubs become one. Do you see that as ever being a possibility again in the AFL, where a couple of clubs might financially or, or structurally need to get together? Yeah, no, I think that with the rugby league, it's happened and been very successful. So, yeah, I think it's it's a you know it's a case of economy. Mm. And also, you know, with with the sort of money in the game now, that you know to keep the thing going, sometimes that'll happen. And you know, it, it's been reasonably successful in a lot of places, and particularly in the country, at least the name sticks and the history goes. Mm. But you know, with less people in certain areas, uh, I, I, I understand it. So back in 1974, you got recruited for the first time to North Melbourne. Do you, do you remember coming over to Melbourne for the very first time to be a part of North Melbourne? You were a little bit reluctant at first, is that right? Yeah, well, in those days, you know, the drafting process that they do in the AFL now is was not there. You had your own state-based competitions, which were very healthy. The Waffle, even the Taff in Tassie had, had the state leagues. Sandford was very, very strong in yeah. South Wales, Queensland, so... I didn't even know there was a thing called the VFL growing up. Mine stopped at the borders. You know, anything to do with football is all about South Australian football. So, and a lot of Perth people were like that too. A lot of Tassie people, mm. they just didn't. That's what you did. Anyhow, what actually happened? Each VFL club for, uh, over the years, they were allowed two signings from interstate each year called the Form Four, and they were fairly treasured little pieces of paper. By the time the sixties and seventies came round. And you could go to anywhere in Australia and, and sign someone on a Form 4. You only had two a year. So they tried, clubs from Melbourne tried to use them wisely. And anyhow, to cut a long story short, I, um, you know, I, I, I played state footy, you know, sort of won the McGarry Medal here in Adelaide. And um, after speaking to a couple of clubs, uh, North Melbourne through Ron Joseph, the general manager at the time. And uh, when I signed with them, I actually decided to sign. They brought me across to Melbourne. They played Carlton in a game. We had a split round here in Adelaide. Mm. So um, I sat in the stand and watched Carlton beaten by about 12 or 15 goals. At that stage, towards the end of the season, North Melbourne had won one game and ended up winning only one game for the year. <laughs> so that weekend, we went up to the Dandenongs and um, uh, with Ron and you know, just had a sandwich or something up there with my wife or fiance at the time, Patsy. And, um, I decided that I'd sign with the intention that I'd never come uh, until I'd played 100 games for Woodville. (laughs) That was, you know, I I saw names on the locker. You know, they mightn't have been household names. We weren't a great successful club because, you know, we're a young club. Hmm. But 
couple of my heroes' names had their locker, and I used to walk past them, and I thought, gee, if I was lucky enough to get my name on a locker. So I was never not reluctant. It was never going to be until I'd actually, you know, I did what I, I was hoping I could do to become a 100-game Woodville player. So what everyone thought or did or said, I couldn't give it a continental about to be perfectly honest. So, I, you know, I, I did. I wanted to play my 100 games. So, anyhow, I signed with North, and uh, I came back, and everyone said, you are mad. They're useless. You know, they've, they've won one game. They haven't won a premiership in 50 years. I mean, they've, they've never... They can't even win a raffle, you know what I mean? So I said, oh, whatever. So you just cop it on the chin, and you just keep playing. And so that was it. Uh, the following year, I actually got married early in February, and then... Uh, at the end of the following year, after playing my 104th game for Woodville, I, I, I decided we, we decided to to start our married life in, in, in Melbourne in, in a new adventure. So by 1981, you'd become the player coach of North Melbourne, and it sort of you fe- I guess fell into that role a little bit at the time. Again, going back to country footy, country footy where this program airs a lot, player coaches is really commonplace now in the AFL as it is at the moment. It would never happen, I wouldn't think, but. How tough was it at the time to be a player coach at an elite level? Well, uh, the, 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 the easiest way to answer that is to say no one's done it since. Yeah. At the level. I was the last one. So, look, it, it, it became, I mean, it, you know, most people probably thought I was a bit leery on the ground. And, I, you know, I went for Mark and kicked the goal or whatever. And, and I did. I really enjoyed playing the game and, and doing all those stuff. But... I also took a tremendous interest. Ron Barassi was the coach at North Melbourne, and we ended up playing in five grand finals in a row. So that was that in itself was just remarkable. Yeah. But because we had an association with Channel Seven in those days, Ron Casey was on the board at North. Gary Fenton was his offsider. He was also. They were both mad North Melbourne people. So we had the luxury of going to watch replays. Remember, in those days, it was only three games televised, not yeah. six. Yeah. So, but North, we, you know, we had a pretty good team, so we got a lot of them. So we'd actually go to the studios at Channel 7 and get the old three-quarter-inch tape, and Brass would coach with the tape. In other words, look at the opposition and also show our faults, mainly. Mm. <laughs> you know, he didn't show a lot of good stuff, I can assure you. But, <laughs> but it actually, it just twerked my brain to look at the analytical thing of football, which, you know, just sent me on this path to actually end it up coaching the team you play for, North Melbourne. Mm. So it was, you know, I, be, I became really quizzical. And then I got into the technique of the game. I loved it. I thrived on it. Anything you could do to get better. And, and, and most of it was about technique. And I think of all the things I did, I was a bit mad as a coach like us all, but I actually taught technique as well as, you know, I possibly could and understood the game through that. But it was actually brass and those tape nights at Channel 7 Studios that actually tweaked the brain to coach. You've obviously loved that part of the game now, the analytical part and, and, and being, you know, looking beneath the covers, I guess, at what, what makes the game and players tick. Did, is there a part of the game that you now feel you've got more out of, being whether it be coaching or playing? Yeah, I, I, yeah. It, it's, hmm. you do. Uh, and hopefully, I mean, when, when it started off, because I'd seen... And you've got to go through back the lineage of, of Ron Brassi mm. and, you know, Len Smith and Norm Smith, and they were very aggressive coaches. Brass was a very aggressive coach. And I started off down that track because I'd seen it be successful. And quite frankly, most of them were at that stage. You know, they'd come from the war years. You know, a lot of them had been shot at and a lot of them had lost their parents like Brass. And so there was, a, you know, there was a lot of, lot of angst and a lot of military-style 
precision in the game, in all sports, not just football. Mm. So, you know, I understood that eventually. And hopefully as I got older as a coach, I could still go there and visit there, but I never lived there. And that's the difference. Do you think we've got to a point where the game is overanalyzed from a coaching point of view? Yeah, I think that the one that is interesting now is, that, and it really pees me off. I mean, I, and I don't know anyone of my vintage, or even and young players playing now, they don't get it because they... All they do is play what's according to the going on now. Yeah. But anyone that's out of the game can see the congestion in football is causing tremendous frustration, mm. tremendous injuries because of the tackling. We weren't a tackling game. We were a tackling game sometimes. Rugby league's a tackling game. We've become a tackling game because of the congestion and injuries come. Mm. And I think that the only thing now, when not that long ago, you, you could almost see the way guys coached you know, Kevin Sheedy was different to Robert Walls, was different to Mick Malthouse. You know, David Parkin was different to Brassie, was, was different to Hafey. You know, they all had their little traits that they liked in the game of football. Now, it's cookie cutter. Mm. Put everyone back in team defence. Hopefully, we lock it in our forward line or make it hard for them to kick goals by locking it in their back line. I mean, it, you know, it's almost cookie cutter style football, which I, I personally love the personality of each of the coaches and the way they tried to play. Mm. Is your thoughts then that the coach, because of that cookie-cutter stuff, doesn't have as much influence over the way a team plays as it maybe used to because they are using a very similar cookie-cutter, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I've said for a few years now, no one's actually chipped me for it. I would have thought someone would have come out and belted me around the ears. Coaches do a power of work during the week. That is a given. And, and a lot of it... Hmm how much can you use of it, but there's a lot of meetings and there's a lot of information flow and, and there's a lot of buzzwords and there's a lot of this and a lot of that. And But that's working. That's that's what they think will get them there. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of work done. Game day, they're the most overrated people in, the, in, in any sport I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And the reason being is it, it, rotations and interchange. Every time you go to do something and someone runs off the ground, you know, whatever you plan to do can unfold in a split second. So you've lost, and I call it, you know, I've run a, a you know, $100 million business while I was coaching and playing. Mm. You lose control of your assets, your profit's going to be well down. Yes. Unless you're the best team, you know, unless you're the best team, and that happens. That's why the best team always wins now. You, you, it's hard to find someone that sneaks up on that. Mm. So I, I just think I, I'd love someone to say team defence is not the only thing. I have this debate with everybody, you know, Fancy coaching, and it happened a couple of weeks ago, I made a comment on the Adelaide Crows, they kicked the ball around the first 10 minutes of the game. Back, 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 back. How do you win that? Mm. At, at what stage do you have to go forward to win? Now, I've always been of the mindset you wouldn't kick one more goal in the opposition. And I said, oh, that's blighty. That's what he says. Hey, it can be eight goals to nine goals. 99% of games are won by the team that wins and kicks the most goals. <laughs> you know, you know it's, occasionally, you know, someone will kick more points and goals and, don't, and they'll win, win a game. It's a fluke. So, I mean, I don't get it. Why you don't actually... Everything you're supposed to do is actually to go forward in our game. Sometimes you go sideways and then go forward. You don't go sideways 23 times. It drives me nuts. Oh, the game is lesser for it. Well, I was going to ask you the question, you know, if, if in 1975, the younger Malcolm Blight, would you have ever stood outside of the sideline close to the point post and practised dribbling a ball on its axis along the ground into the goal. That wouldn't have happened in 1975, would it? No. You know what happened in 1975? You learned to kick up. And I'll tell you why. All those dribble kicks, if you kick up, you can kick goals like that in the air. Mm. It's the same dynamics on the ball. 
I mean, I, this has all become a thing now, but I can show you now a hundred times where guys will kick the ball and kick it up, and you've got more chance of actually kicking up because you don't rely on a bounce. Mm. You just don't rely on a bounce. And I can tell you now, there were some freak goals, and you'll see them, and, that, and occasionally someone will do it now. They'll kick the ball and they'll kick it up. Once you kick up, you've got more chance of following through with the leg on a better angle than what you have by kicking down. So, I mean, you can still do all of that by kicking up and getting some air on the ball, and it goes through. You know, I've never seen one ball jammed in between the goalposts. <laughs> That's right. Never. Media came knocking 988. Just to go back to the, the... You were on a bit of a hiatus from the coaching thing, and Channel 7 came knocking, which has then become your life, essentially, working in media and writing and being on radio and TV and commentating and special comments of the game. Do you love that part of it now, the media game? Probably a loaded question because you're in it and it pays the bills, but do you, do you love it? Yeah, no, look, once again, when I first started as special comments, I got the, I got the call actually from Gary Fenton from Channel 7 and I'd come back to Melbourne to run a quite a big business. So I was out of footy. I got a call, phone call from North Melbourne and John Kennedy was coach, senior John Kennedy, and said, would you you know, like to be an assistant coach? I said, look, I've, I have to do a lot of travel, you know, because I was in charge of a... General manager of a, of a big operation around Australia, mm. so actually I was actually moving around the states a lot. So I said, "Look, I'm going to have 12 months off just to see what the workload's going to be like." You know, it was quite a big job. Anyhow, about a week later, Gary Fenton rang me up and he said, would, "Would you want to do some special comments, which I've never ever done before?" And I said, "Look, I'm going to be flying around the states, so look, it might work." You know, so I had to go to Perth, Brisbane, da 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 da. So I actually travelled and tied it in. So I worked Channel Seven work with me. And we worked it in. So, and one of the things I found was that that technique that I'd fell in love with, mm. you know, you know, that right-handed punches punched to the left-hand side of the pack seven out of ten times. Mm. That sort of stuff I started to put out on the air, and everyone thought, "Oh, geez, he's a bit of a genius, this bloke." <laughs> you know, when it, when it sort of it sort of felt right. You know, it was quite, it was quite. I remember the first game I did. It was really strange. I did the first game. I think it was Essendon. I think so at at Waverley. So it was a. It was a preseason, you know, one of those preseason games. Mm. And anyhow, you know, I, I remember driving out and we went out to Waverley. And um, anyhow, cut a long story short, I don't guess, and they kicked a couple of goals and or didn't, anyhow, missed it. And so I said, no, nah, look, I, I mean, they're missing out on a couple of opportunities here. They should be running down this side of the pack because the centre-half back's a you know, right-handed puncher. And most are going to come, well, the very next centre bounce goes bang, bang, bang. Someone runs down that side, kicks the goal. Well, the whole football world said, what have we got here? So, I mean, it was quite funny. And, and you know, some of the write-ups from there on in, did you hear what he said? And, you know, it was quite interesting that the technique of the game, which never ever been talked about, it was mainly, oh, that's a nice kick. But why was it a nice kick? Mm. You know, why was it a nice spoil? He used a battle axe punch. He didn't come across the ball. He came down the ball. You know, so all these things that I'd learned from the coaching stints and watching video after video after video, which I did for the whole of my life when I was coaching. That's mm. why I burn out so much. But, but all those sort of things have started to put into practice. And now co-hosting Sports ASA to give the plug on 5AA as part of the AFL Nation team across Australia. That part of the Malcolm Blight life, it's a nightly show, the commitment of doing that. You love that part of it? Yeah, look, I do. One of, I mean, as you get a bit older, of course, one of the things I've always found, and, I, you know, you've always done something. And I must admit, um, you know, living in Queensland, as I did for... 18 years, as I did for Melbourne, nearly 20 years. And, you know, coming back to Adelaide home, you know, which is really where all, both Pats and my families come from, is that, is that I started twiddling my thumbs. You know what I mean? You, you just 
I actually need to do something. Yeah. You know, it's an hour show. I mean, I, I do a lot of prep. I over-prep the show probably like you do. And most people I know that, are, you know, hopefully a reasonable what they do. Um, but I do my prep and, um, you know, sometimes things are off the cuff. <laughs> sometimes they, they go strange places. But as you well know, in the media business, that's not too bad sometimes. Mm. And, I, and I think it just gives me something to focus on during the day so that, you know, yeah, I twiddle my thumbs. I, I don't know what I do. I need something to do, and I'm one of those people, and I know that now, and that's why I've, I've probably been involved in, you know, footy or business or something for my whole life, and I'm not getting any younger, I can assure you, but I still enjoy it. I think it keeps you a fraction younger. Mm. It certainly keeps the grey matter going around. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. It makes you think about things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I enjoy it. I, I, I'm not married. When I say I'm not married to it, I enjoy it. Once I do it, though... You know, I can come home and have dinner and then, you know, it's a six to seven show. So it's not forever. Mm. It's just a nice way to, you know, keep involved. Malcolm, do you have a favourite moment? In well, Let's split it into two. Let's go with the player coaching part first. Is there a favourite moment in all that where you just look back on it and think you're so thrilled that you're a part of that? Yeah, I, look, I've actually settled on something over the journey. I mean, there's been, yeah, so many. But one of the things that I've sort of overlooked until later was that, you know, in in a in the VFL-AFL competition, mm. I mean, the top 10 of all time of grand final appearances as player and a coach, you know, um, which which when you think about it, and I spent half my life across the border in Adelaide yeah. doing something similar. So to actually be, in the, you know, as a player and a coach, five as a player, five as a coach, mm. when you think of all the boyhood dreams and, you know, seeing everyone knows how to hold up the cup, and run around the oval, no matter what level. You know, the under-12s, the under-16s, the B-grades, the C-grades, everyone knows what's to do when you win a premiership because every 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 child's probably dreamed doing that. That's the game. So to actually get a chance to do that at the MCG, you know, for 10 times both of the player and the coach, mm. I think when I look back now, that's probably the overriding thing you think. I think, oh, gee, that was special. You know, how lucky are you to be there? So, and then, you know, to, to win four of them and draw one and you know the whole gambit of winning and losing and all that thing that makes up sport and makes up reality tv look like you know chicken feed really mm. compared to what sport can what about from a media point of view most memorable moment let's go with yeah, that I, look I, you're talking about um there is a genre now called on the couch yeah you know, everyone has these things I, I was very fortunate to start a thing called talking footy with bruce McAvaney and mike sheehan yeah called talking footy all those years ago where three blokes sat down and talked about it, you know, talked about football on the highlights at 10.30 on a Monday night, mm. which became one of the great little sleepers, you know, for, for a number of years. Yeah. And it's almost, the, you know, the concept, right, to start off with, it was going to be three of us just sitting around a bar. That was the original concept that Gary Fenton from Channel 7 had, which I've mentioned a couple of times now. But, yeah, that was the original concept. And they thought, oh, perhaps the alcohol on TV, we shouldn't do that. Why don't we do a couch? So that genre, you know, with the front bar, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. now has got one of those shows, which started with uh, Bruce McAvaney, Mike Sheen and myself, which I really, really enjoyed. The fact that that, that whole system's still going is amazing, you know, 30 years later. Well, let's talk about COVID for a minute. The impact that the AFL has had on Australian life in the last 18 months. Do you think that without sort of opening a can of worms, have they done a good job of managing all of that given the challenges that they've had? 
Yeah, my broad brush opinion is that I don't envy anybody in, in the role in the AFL now, whether you're player, administrator, staff, whatever. Mm. You know, she's been tough work. And, and I know the community, all those in the community are equal to that. So there's no winners and losers. So, you know, it, it's been a terrible time for everybody in the world, let alone just Australia or the AFL. Mm. And what I find, <clears throat> for someone trying to put something on to give some escapism, if you're into football or if you're into tennis or golf, for, for those sporting activities that we can all share in, particularly on TV and radio, as we've just spoken about, I think good on them and fantastic for doing it. To be critical of either part of it, and I've seen some people say, well, how come the AFL get this? Or how come... I wish those people would wake up and say it's just not the AFL. Mm. It is a whole host of other sporting and reality things that the world is trying to do to keep people entertained and look after themselves from a mental health point of view. I get all that. I wish those detractors would just shut up. Because how much impact is it having on players, do you think? Um, you know, if you drift back to your coaching days, if, if you were in a situation where you had a playing list who sometimes didn't know where they were playing um, a week in advance, um, were being shunted from state to state, in some ways it feels like they're being rushed under airplanes at the last minute to avoid lockdowns. What sort of impact does that have on a playing group? Yeah, look, yeah I, as I said, I don't envy them. Um, I just think I, I, my whole premise was, um, you know, where will a final be played? You know, will it be played at Geelong Ground? Will it be played in Western Australia? Will it be played in South Australia? I used to say, so there was never no whinging, and this would be my approach to it, and I think I think most coaches and clubs have been doing this. Mm. They didn't last year for a while. I know the Eagles, you know, the West Coast Eagles wanted to get home and they couldn't, da-da-da, so they dropped off a bit. But most clubs now realise, I always said, I'll play them anywhere. If you want to play on bitumen in the middle of Australia, I'll play you there. Just... Tell us where we have to be, and I think if you take that attitude, because I don't know what Grant, I don't know what the other attitude is. Yeah, I mean, do you suck up? Where does that get from a from the guts and culture within your footy club or any sporting club for that matter? If you start sucking up, all it does is give people an out, and I I could never understand that. Malcolm Blythe, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the journey of going from the early Malcolm stuff to talking about some of the stuff we have in, in, the, in recent minutes. Thank you so much. really appreciate it. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for your time. The Sunday Celebrations Radio Show airs on Easy Music 3MP in Melbourne every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and on the ACE Radio Network across regional Victoria and southern New South Wales every Sunday evening at 8 o'clock. We'll have another great guest next week. Until then, I'm your host, Grant Johnston. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.